This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I'd like to begin to address the character of our church uh, our individual lives to have them be examined and to see if there is anything in us that is hindering us from functioning as a church. It is extremely difficult to build a healthy church today. I could say in America, I could say North America, and there are reasons for that. And many of you have a lot of hurts uh, from the Church of Jesus Christ, and I'll raise my hand right along with you and say, yep, right there with you. In fact, I have, uh, I, I don't really have hurts from the world, you know, those that don't know Christ. In fact, to be honest, sometimes it's easier to be around them. Uh, it's the church that oftentimes uh, has their knife pulled out and seems ready to go right into the back of the fellow believer, uh, because we have our, our things, our issues as Christians that, you know, the world doesn't necessarily struggle with the same exact things we do. They just have different varieties of it. I'm not saying the world's healthy, don't get me wrong. However, we as the church, uh, we, we bear daggers that sometimes we don't even realize we bear. And I would like to begin to discuss how we function as a church, because there's certain things that make running our college extremely difficult, and make running a church extremely difficult. And for the most part, it would be a lot easier if we just said, you know what, let's just sort of shut down operations and just be individual Christians just sort of floating around on planet Earth instead of trying to do this together. However, that would be the enemy's bait and not God's. God's not the one saying that. And so what I want to begin to address is the character that we have and are we actually functioning in alignment with what the scriptures say in regards to how we are to work together as a body. The spirit of the age, a study in how ungodly behavior creeps into the church. I had some different uh, words to exchange out for ungodly. Uh, how, a study in how stinky behavior creeps into the church was one of my options, and I felt like that would add a little more humor value to what I'm about to go through. Uh, how anti-Christ behavior creeps into the church. Now, when you hear something like anti-Christ, you're like, oh, that's just so bad. Yeah, anything that is opposite of the spirit of Christ is anti-Christ. There's only two spirits. Well, you have a whole bunch of everything in the demonic realm and everything that is of the spirit of God. And so if it's not born of the spirit of God, it is anti-Christ. And how could we, as those that bear the name of Jesus, actually behave in a manner that is anti-Christ? Doesn't it seem like a contradiction? Well, it is a contradiction, and it shouldn't be in our lives, and that's, of course, why I want to address these things. The spirit of the age, it's just a term. In fact, Dan brought it up the other day. We were discussing some of the, the issues, the impediments, as we're trying to reformat the way we're, we're approaching our discipleship moving forward. One of the things we're dealing with is 
wow, this is a, there's certain things at Ellerslie, for instance, that we do very well at addressing. And they get addressed, and we don't even really think out loud about it, but they're huge issues in the culture. But here at Ellerslie, in a sense, we have a good solution, a good model for addressing it. There's other things that just seem untended, and they sort of float around, and they create havoc. And it's just knowing how to address these things. But if we were to enunciate and create a list of all the different behavior characteristics of the younger generation that is prone to show up at Ellerslie, it's like you could create a list and say, yeah, they have a tendency towards this, 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 and this. And none of you that are, of course, students right now would say, thanks a lot. I'm saying we have a propensity. It's called the spirit of the age. We grow up in a generation, in a culture, and in a sense, we're being discipled by something that we don't even recognize is shaping us. And so as a result, when Eric brings up homosexuality, boom, there is a resistance in a room like this. Not because you either are for or against, it's a sensitivity, because the spirit of our age that it prevails in our culture defines how you feel about things. And you would prefer not to talk about it. Or you'd prefer to have that guy shut up that would dare talk about it, that they would dare bring the Bible on that issue. It's the spirit of the age. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks bluntly about these things. However, we in the spirit of our age are caught up in a certain attitude towards things. You could call it political correctness, but I'm going to call it the spirit of the age because it's always there. They haven't always called it political correctness throughout the ages, but it is called the spirit of the world. And when the spirit of the world enters into the church and begins to run the church, who's running the church? It's not Jesus. So that's what we're going to address. The spirit of the age is the current reigning behavior, compulsion, attitude of the world system. The German word for it is the zeitgeist. Isn't that an attractive word? The zeitgeist. The spirit of the times, the spirit of the current age. And so that's what it's talking about. A victim to the zeitgeist. Are we just victims to this? Because for all practical purposes, it almost feels like no matter what we do as leaders in the church, the zeitgeist rules. It's like you could stand up and proclaim the word of God, but the zeitgeist overcomes you as a, as a leader in the church today. I mean, what good are we actually doing? I mean, I've been in ministry for 20 years, and if you were to say, so Eric, is the world better off because of you standing up and proclaiming the gospel these past 20 years? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it could be a very defeated mentality that I could begin to uh, in, entertain there because I don't think it's gotten better. In fact, it only seems like it's getting worse The zeitgeist is ruling the church of Jesus Christ. The spirit of the age, the spirit of this world is actually the one seemingly in control of the church. And any pastor that would dare stand up and say the opposite, he's out. So, how are we as the body of Christ that is getting healthy going to handle this spirit? I say, let's deal with it. So, here's the mentality of our age. So, George Hegel, philosopher. No man can surpass his own time, for the spirit of his time is also his own spirit. I don't care who you are, says George, but if you live in such a time, the spirit of the time is yours. You see, the spirit of a man is defined by his time, and every time is going to shape individuals in that time to behave and to act a certain way. So you either buy that... Or let me share with you something. 
A man who believes upon Christ can, in fact, surpass his own time and can defy the spirit of his time, for the spirit of God is deposited within his own spirit. That's the gospel. You see, the spirit of the time does not rule a Christian. The spirit of God rules a Christian. We are not ruled by the spirit of this world. We are ruled by a greater spirit, the spirit of the Almighty, the spirit of the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's greater than the spirit of our time. So the zeitgeist, the spirit of the world. You know what the Bible talks about this? It doesn't use the German term zeitgeist. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. You see, there's a pattern of this world. There's a way in which this world functions, thinks, behaves. And Paul is saying, look, I know that all of you used to walk in this. All of you lived in accordance with that spirit, with the zeitgeist. According to the prince of the power of the air, do you know who controls those that are in the world's spirit, in the world's pattern? That's the prince of the power of the air, known as the devil, known as Satan. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And so one of the evidences of the spirit is it's a disobedience to the pattern of God, to the spirit of God. It lives at enmity. It is opposite the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. What spirit do you think you received? The zeitgeist? You didn't receive that spirit. You already had that. No, you've received something altogether different, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So listen to D.L. Moody's statement. Imagine that the church is a ship. And the vast spirit of the world, I mean, we're in the world, right? But we're not supposed to be of the world. So the, the world is, say, the water. We're on the, on the water, we're in the water, but the water isn't supposed to be in the ship. And that's what D.L. Moody says. The place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. You see, if the sea overcomes the ship, what happens to the ship? It sinks. And what we have today in modern Christianity is we have the zeitgeist or the spirit of the world that has actually infiltrated the ship. And we're trying to figure out why we can't make it float and why it's at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, we're under the world system. We're not floating on top of it. The Pad Thai incident. Those of you that were here on Thursday know the Pad Thai incident. It makes me look really good. Uh, so uh, a few weeks ago, I, was, I had my date night uh, with Leslie, and it's wonderful, romantic, right? Leslie wanted to get some Asian food, which I like Asian food, so don't, don't think that I don't. However, this particular Asian restaurant I've never been a big fan of. Last time I went there, I put a little flag in my mind to just note that the food wasn't very good. And so, but Leslie has had some dish there, I think, that she was dreaming of that she really wanted to go back to. And so, you know, look, I'm a loving husband. I said, okay. And we went to uh, the Asian restaurant, and uh, I couldn't remember what I'd gotten last time, so I ordered pad thai. Pad thai is just a good staple. You know, it's just always predictable, right? Like Levi's jeans, except for at this restaurant. This was one of those restaurants that decided to be a little fancy uh, with how they did their pad thai. And it did not smell like peanut sauce, which, as far as I'm concerned, pad thai is peanut sauce and noodles, okay? That's just, in my mind, the way it works. Now, some of you that are more Asian connoisseurs, you know, could say, oh, no, Eric, there's all sorts of different types of pad thai. However, in Windsor, Colorado, anywhere I go around here, that's the way it's always been. So I ordered pad thai, and it smelled like hard liquor, and it was red sauce, and it was like a pool of sauce, this deep. It was like a bath for my noodles. It's like, what is this? And it was, 
I mean, to me, I couldn't even have it under my nose. And so immediately when the pad thai was set before me, I found something enter into me. And this is going to be something I'm going to build on through this message. It was a grievance. You see, I have been spending almost every day, all day long, thinking about lost souls. And almost every single conversation I've entered into in the past few months has been about Jesus. I'm constantly seeking people to know Jesus Christ. I want them to see, to behold his grandeur. And yet what was interesting is when I received this pad thai, no longer was I thinking about souls. I allowed a grievance to enter in. Something that said, Eric, this doesn't agree with you. And when it didn't agree with my stomach and my tastes and the way I would want my pad thai is I found almost instantaneously that I lost sight of the souls around me. No longer did I care about the waitress and her eternal condition. All I cared about was my satisfaction with my meal. And this was not satisfying. In fact, I even brought it back under my nose one more time because I figured I don't want to waste this money. And so I was going to dig into it. And, oh! And I shoved it to the middle of the table. I cannot eat this. And Leslie uh, wasn't enjoying hers uh, very much either. And so we asked for boxes to go. That was like the way of dealing with it so we weren't extremely rude. However, the thing God put his finger on is, Eric, what was that? You see, Eric is always smiling and laughing and thinking of others until I got that pad tie. You see, there's something that can enter into any of our lives at any given point, and it's a pad tie dish that isn't cooked properly. You see, you have expectations of how even the church is supposed to run. But if something gets set out in front of you that isn't quite to your liking, you can immediately lose your Christian witness and turn into something altogether different. The zeitgeist is back. The spirit of the world can very quickly enter into the church, and it's through grievance. It's typically how it works. Is it that big of a deal that I spent X amount of dollars on this, and I had an expectation for how my date night meal was going to go? Is it that big of a deal? You know what? I should be willing as a Christian to donate that money to happily give up and fast that meal to reach that, the soul of the waitress. However, when the spirit of the world entered in, in and through that grievance, I found myself behaving very different than Jesus would behave in that situation. So the Pad Thai incident, a study in the behavior which hinders Christianity. The excused grievance. Now the good thing about this situation is God convicted me. And even though I had my little momentary lapse into ridiculousness, I have a faithful God that said, Eric, what is that? It was a bad attitude. I was thinking about me and my stomach and my tastes and my affinities, and I wasn't thinking about God and his agenda and his love for those around me. And so as a result, yes, I repented and I made that right. But in that process, I was vulnerable and extremely vulnerable. And I want us to begin to recognize that if you have a grievance at any level, I mean, some of the smallest things, someone walks by you and accidentally bumps into you. They don't even realize they did it. However, you could very quickly go, excuse me, excuse me. And now suddenly you're not thinking about the health of souls around you. You're thinking about something that was done to you, perpetrated against you. What do we represent here as a church? Very likely a whole bunch of people that have been hurt somewhere along the line in church. And as a result, we usually sit in our seats uh, with a little bit of a jaundiced eye towards everything that's going on. Every worship song sung. Every Christian around us, are they like them? 
And as a result, we've, we hinder what God wants to do in the body. So the excuse grievance and its destructive effect. Church in the year of our Lord, 2015, that's right now, it's nearly impossible to make it work. Question, why? Answer, because it is ruled by the spirit of this age instead of the spirit of the Lord. We have so many reasons why we have justified allowing a bad attitude into our Christianity. A bad attitude into our behavior towards one another. You see, we have excuses. We have reasons. It's like, well, Eric, I'm not convicted by that because this person actually did this to me. You have a bona fide complaint. I could issue out a whole bunch of real complaints about the church of Jesus Christ today. I could. I know more about the church of Jesus Christ than most of you. Probably put a whole bunch of you together. I've traveled all over the world, spoken in thousands of churches. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to today's church. And I have reason to complain. Pad Thai dish that smells like bourbon been set under my nose. I don't like it. And yet, how I handle that Pad Thai defines my Christianity. How you handle that grievance in your life defines your Christianity. William Carey and his youthful missionaries. So if you study Christian history, William Carey will be one of the key names that comes up. One of the great examples of missions work. He went over to India and pioneered the work in India. He is one of the most extraordinary men that ever walked the earth. And yet, in his day and age, he had a very similar problem. He had the issue of the young missionaries and the zeitgeist. So let's, let me walk through the, the story very quickly, just to give you a sampling, because then I'm going to go to the Word of God, and I'm going to show you a story in the Word of God which demonstrates the same exact thing. Carey founded the Baptist Missionary Society in England as a young man. He pioneered missionary work in India with two other men and amid great hardship for 30-plus years before new missionaries arrived. It was these three. You see, the East India... It was a tea company. What, well, I forgot what the East India Company was, was called, but they actually hindered any more missionaries from coming over. They were threatened by that. And so as a result, they had a hold on uh, the parliament in England from, that was hindering any more missionaries to be uh, freed to come to, to, to India. And so these three men literally carried the entire weight of missions work in India for 30 plus years. The stories are harrowing what these men went through. The difficulties, the diseases, the trials, the tribulations that these men endured to pioneer and to establish missions work in India is extraordinary, awe-inspiring, the type of thing that should raise us all to our feet for a standing ovation. They labored among parliament to pass laws for other missionaries to be allowed to come to India. They planned... They submitted. Uh, it's like, please, could you consider this? We have a dying world over here. We need other people that have been trained and educated properly to come to India and be able to be missionaries. His nephew, Eustace Carey, you know, his name's William Carey, so this is his nephew, Eustace Carey, was the first to be approved to go to India as a missionary, and soon others followed. Now we finally have the wave. After 30-plus years, whew, we finally have some support. We have some help. These were all very young men that were arriving there. The new missionaries didn't agree with how Carrie did things. They all arrive and they begin to sort of look at how the three older men did things. They're like, that's not the way we would do it. And then they got together. The new missionaries banded together, unbeknownst to Carrie, and spent time venting all their frustrations with how Carrie ran the mission in India. His nephew Eustace Carrie joined them. 
all these newbies that hadn't done anything, hadn't soiled, you know, their, hadn't gotten dirt under their fingernails uh, to do anything in India, suddenly had a higher opinion than these three that had labored their entire life to pioneer and to even open the door for these new ones to come in. The new missionaries wrote back to England, unbeknownst to Kerry, explaining to the mission board all the reasons Kerry was not fit to run the mission in India. So here is a man who has literally laid down his life for India, laid down his life to even get these missionaries here, and these young missionaries, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but the audacity is just off the charts. It's like, excuse me, young missionaries, but don't you recognize how disrespectful this is to those who have gone before you? Here's the interesting thing. The answer is no. They don't see how disrespectful it is. It's the spirit of the age. You see, disrespect, the older generation oftentimes recognizes disrespect. They're like, that is completely disrespectful. The younger generation does not see it. It is a blind spot. And as a result, we have literally the fracturing of one of the most important works at that time in the world. India, totally blocked off to the gospel, actually as an inrush. William Carey and these other two men have labored. Their back's broken at this altar to literally say, how can we serve God in India? And then all it takes is a little youthful zeal to come in and undermine the whole thing. All the old mission board that originally sent forth Carey had died, and the board was now filled with friends of the young missionaries. These new board members stood on the side of the young missionaries and were concerned about Carey's efforts. Could you imagine all your old friends? I mean, this is 30-plus years. They all start dying off. And what are they being replaced on in England? The board for the mission society that Carey founded is now full of the friends of the young missionaries that are banding together to criticize him. This led to the greatest, most painful trials of William Carey's ministry life. This man had endured diseases, dangers, and the most extreme hardships. But out of his own mouth, he testified that the undermining of these young missionaries was the greatest challenge his soul ever faced. You see, what we have is the greatest pains that you will ever experience in your life come from the church. This has always been proven true throughout the ages. You read Christian missionary stories. You read Christian biographies. The greatest pains are not from the world. They're oftentimes from the religious system itself. The ones that are literally your brothers and sisters, you find yourself more vulnerable to them, as you should be. Well, I mean, we've talked about it before. Where, where do some of the greatest pains in life come from? Parents. Uh, some of the deepest wounds in our life came from parents, brothers and sisters. You know, the safest place in all the world today should be a mother's womb, and yet it's the most dangerous. You see, those places that we are supposed to find refuge, a church! A church, you're supposed to find safety and security, and yet what have we found? If I were to go through this room, I'm sure there's a few young kids that don't quite understand what I mean by this, but there's, I bet, a whole bunch of us in here that could come up and give some miserable testimony of our pad tie that wasn't to our liking. It did not satisfy us. That's where I want us to be watchful. Introducing the undermining voice. There is a voice, and at Ellerslie, when I teach about faith, I teach about the two voices. I have a pedestal over here with the Bible on it, and then I have a pedestal over here with an apple on it. There's always two, two trees in the garden. There's two, there's two voices. There's a voice that leads you to truth. It's called the Word of God, it's Jesus Christ. And there's a voice that leads you away from truth. 
It's the spirit of the age is how we're describing it today. But it's the slick attorney. It's the serpent. It's the voice that says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't fully understand it. It's always accusing and criticizing and fault-finding the word of God. When that enters the church, it doesn't just fault-find the word of God. It fault-finds anyone who stands up for the word of God, too. And if you look close enough at any of us that lead the church, what are you going to find? Fault. Well, that's all you needed was a little fault. You see, that spirit kills, and it is not allowed in the church of Jesus Christ. Introducing the undermining voice. By the way, the undermining voice is not Sandy McConaughey. Sandy's a little embarrassed by the fact that I'm quoting her in this message. She sent me an answer to basically what this message was. We were talking about the spirit of the age. And so she wrote this, and so I stuck it in the notes. Uh, And so I told her that I would say it's an anonymous quotation. Okay, so this is just an anonymous quotation. You don't know who said it, okay? (laughs) I believe the spirit of the age in this young generation is a very prideful spirit as well as a dishonorable spirit toward those who are seasoned and have labored hard since their youth to be led by God's Holy Spirit, spending hours in prayer to truly apprehend his leading. The young ones can be vulnerable to, we can do this better with more zeal, and let's get this thing going, spirit, which makes them impulsive, myopic, and all of a sudden passionate about new ideas and teachings that may merely be repackaged tradition, pet doctrines, or hobby horses. The emergent church is nothing new. It's merely liberalism packaged under a new language. However, those that are undiscerning, those that are young, are being swept into this idea because the seasoned ones, when they speak, they go, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. It's liberalism. It is literally that which has destroyed the church throughout the ages. It is the serpent hanging from a tree questioning the authority of the word of God. That book isn't full of truth. It's full of errors. Same voice. It's always been there. And then you have even the Hebrew Roots Movement that is sweeping through the church today. It is a doctrine that has been proven faulty throughout the ages of Christianity, but today it sounds new, it sounds fresh. And the young ones are not discerning to be able to recognize that this will carry you into error. And so when you have an impulsive spirit that comes into the church, we become very vulnerable to things that have been proven wrong for centuries and centuries and centuries that have destroyed and shipwrecked church after church after church, we literally need to learn how to work together. We need to know how to function with respect and honor and humility as our vanguard. Absalom, here's our story from Scripture that will address this square on. It is not necessarily a fun story to go through. However, it's a story that I think is important for all of us to recognize because David is a man after God's own heart. And yet in David's life, you know, there's three different people that were chosen for king over him in his life. I asked Hudson at the breakfast table this morning, I said, do you know who the three are? You see, God may have had it situated that David was going to be the rightful king of Israel. However, the people of Israel wanted a king and they wanted him now. And so who did God give them? He gave them the choice of their hearts. He gave them the one that was head and shoulders above all of Israel. He was the giant of Israel. His name was Saul. And then when Samuel came to anoint the king, remember out of the sons of Jesse? The first one he saw was Eliab. He was like, this is the guy. There he is right there. 
tall, strapping, strong. God says, no, no, don't measure according to the outside. I've rejected him. The third, Absalom. Israel chose Absalom over David. It's an amazing thing, but David represents Jesus in this story. And there is something likened unto our soul in the nation of Israel. We have a propensity towards Saul, towards Eliab, and towards Absalom. We're vulnerable to it, and if we don't recognize that vulnerability, we'll be taken in by the subtlety and craft, by their huge stature, their bulging muscles, by the long, flowing hair. Isn't that awkward when you study Absalom? It's like, what is the deal with his hair? You know that Absalom is actually not how it's pronounced. In the Hebrew, it's Abe Shalom. And so if you know the word Shalom, that's peace, right? Ab is the name for father. And so his name, Father Peace. Uh, Shalom, let's look at it just with a little more robust thought, uh, because most of us, when we think of peace, means the lack of war. There's no war present. That's actually not exactly what it means. Shalom is completeness, soundness, safety, welfare, health, prosperity. One of the best ways to say it is all is right or all as it should be. This is the way it should be. And so when you wish shalom or you bless someone with shalom, that's what you're saying, that it would be as it should be in your life. So Absalom, which is the way I'm going to say it, just I'm not going to pronounce it in the Hebrew way. Let's just say it the way we all know it. This is basically what his name would mean. Forget David. I'm the one who can make all things, all that is wrong, right in Israel. You see, his name is father of peace. And so he's the father of peace, but it's a false peace. You see, the concept that Absalom brings is if you listen to me, then I can make things right in Israel that are wrong. You see, this is the voice that always gets us off course. You see something that's wrong, but when you see something that's wrong, what are you vulnerable to? The Absalom voice. The answer that comes not from God or from his word, but from another voice another spirit. That's where grievance opens up a door. So you may have something that is bona fide and wrong, something that isn't wholly correct, but the Bible actually leads us in how to handle that properly. However, there's another voice that will teach you how to handle it improperly. Pad Thai is, bad Pad Thai is going to be served up to all of us. However, the Bible actually would teach Eric Ludi how to rightly handle that situation. You see, first, I don't think about my own stomach. I don't think about my own wants and desires. I always remember God's agenda. And I say, all right, God, this is some pretty stinky pad thai. What do you want me to do with this? You see, if I immediately turn it over to God, what am I thinking? You know, first of all, God's probably correct. He's saying, Eric, are you willing to forsake your meal tonight to make sure that your witness of me maintains constancy? Yes. Would you even be willing to fast? Oh, God, it's my date night. This is my night to like, eat up. Yes. Eric, this is to show your wife the love of Jesus and to show that waitress. Maybe all the others that might witness around. You have an opportunity to witness of Jesus Christ, even in how you handle the bad, bad tie. You see, in every situation, there's two voices. There's the voice that comes of truth, and there's the voice that is going to woo you to mishandle grievance. Forget David, says Absalom. I'm the one who can make all that is wrong right in Israel. The reason I share with you this name is to show you that in the Hebrew, every name means something, but sometimes the person that is holding the name actually reveals the opposite of it. For instance, my father is peace or the father of peace. Well, Absalom was the opposite of being the father of peace, right? He was the father of contention. 
That's what's interesting about him. Well, look at this guy. Lucifer. In the Hebrew, it's Hillel. I don't know how in the world they get the pronunciation Lucifer. Uh, however, that's what it is, and it means bringer of light. Yeah, you know what light means to the Hebrew? Knowledge and understanding. Guess what? He does bring knowledge, and he'll bring understanding, but it's not in concordance with heaven. It's in concordance with the spirit of this world. He'll explain everything through his lens. That's how the enemy works. And so what you see is, yeah, he's a bringer of light, but we're going to call it bringer of false light, false knowledge. It's not truth. Lucifer, forget Jesus, for I have knowledge that he is purposely withholding from you. This is the serpent hanging from the tree. Knowledge that will make all things right for you. Now, one of the things you're going to begin to recognize in this story is that this is the voice that comes against David. Who's the son of David? Jesus. It diminishes Jesus Christ in your soul when you listen to this voice. It establishes Saul. It establishes Eliab. It establishes Absalom. It is the agenda of the devil to hinder the establishment of Jesus Christ and his church. The dumbest generation ever. I forgot the book. Dan actually had the book for me so I could show it to you. The Dumbest Generation, there's another uh, name for the, the, this book, and it's called Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I gave a message called, uh, oh, what was that? Uh, most Unlikely Heroes. Uh, the Most Unlikely Heroes goes through the six different things that Mark Bauerlein in this book details as far as the, when they studied the younger generation, this is what they, what they found. Basically, it's, what would be classified as the dumbest generation in the history of the world. You've never had more information accessible to you, but you have no clue how to use it. 75% of the younger generation today is unfit for military service. 75%. Does that tell us anything spiritually? We are unfit to engage in battle. Unfit. We are not ready for it. You know that there's a massive problem with hearing? One of the reasons that that you can't be accepted in the military is because of obesity, that's one of the reasons, and hearing loss. Because of all the sound and the noise that we've had in our lives, literally we are ill-equipped to enter the military. The most basic levels, this is pathetic. And this is the generation that we're in. In other words, we have our work cut out for you. Because I don't mind if you just get mad at that and say, well, I'm not going to be like that. That's right. I don't blame you for saying that. I think you should defy it. And if there was ever a, a smile on God's face, it would be now. Who does he want to use as the generation to change the world? Well, the dumbest generation ever would be perfect. In other words, he loves to take the weak things. So when you go through the list of six things, there was number five, which is called betrayal of mentors. And I remember reading this uh, when Dan sent me over the list. I was like, wow, that is precisely what I've seen. You see, many of you, say parents here, the propensity of young kids to be raised by loving parents and to have those kids betray their parents, literally spurn their parents. They get everything they want from their parents, and then, you know, because of one, they get, you could find fault with your parents. No matter how hard, you know, how good they were, you could find it. And they literally betray them. They turn against them. They become their arch nemesis. Something's not right about this. The most apt to disbelieve, disregard, or betray teachers and mentors of any generation. There is such a great susceptibility to turning against those that invest in you. And as a result, see, this is how the enemy works it. 
Then those that are investing in you, pause next time in thinking of investing. It's like, I don't know that I want to invest in anyone anymore. Because these people that I invested in literally stabbed me in the back. And so what you have are those that have something to give, hesitate to give. Those that receive, turn and stab in the back those that gave. Do you see a problem? This is not supposed to be in the church. I recognize that it's the spirit of the age, but not in the church of Jesus Christ. However, if I'm going to be honest with you, I'd say, oh, it's been in the church of Jesus Christ. Believe me, thick in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. Introducing Absalom. Talk about a man who betrayed his mentor. His father is David. He literally doesn't just betray him, but he defiles his father's throne, takes his wives and concubines and publicly shames them in front of the nation. This is such a disregard of any degree of righteousness, of propriety. It is so off course. And yet, if you were to listen to, uh, to I keep on calling him Lucifer, to Absalom, you would say, you know what? You have a really good point. You were unjustly treated. I do think that maybe it is just what you did. That's what's so twisted about what we see in this man's life. We're going to call him Mr. False Peace. A story of feigned righteousness. Feigned means to fake something. It's not real. So this is not real righteousness. Chapter 1. Absalom is born into the royal family. In other words, I don't want you to think we're just talking about some average character in Israel. We're talking about one of the most influential characters, even from birth. He is he's like Prince is it Prince William? Is that what his name is? The, the, the heir apparent, Prince William? He's like Prince William, where all of the, you know, the papers are putting him on the front of it. You know, it's like, hey, what's he doing today? And the paparazzi follows him around. That's the way Lucifer, uh, Lucifer, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> I, it's one of those things that's very accurate, but not what I'm trying to say. Absalom has a position, a position of influence. A silver spoon is in his mouth from a young age. And this man is for whatever reason, according to scripture, literally perfect from head to toe. There's like no imperfection in him. He's just like a god, a Greek god. And his hair is so awkward. I don't know how all the guys in here, maybe all the girls like, oh, I don't know. But when I hear about his hair, it just makes me feel weird. It grows so much in a year. Do you guys remember the weight of it after a year? It's, it's like this massive amount. If you took the weight of my hair after a year, it probably wouldn't even measure I don't have a clue what this guy's doing, okay? But he's born into a royal family, and he's beautiful. Well, he has a sister who's also beautiful. Her name is Tamar. And as, equal as, I mean, as, as he is beautiful, she is beautiful. So uh, that's what leads to some of the problems. We're going to call it the tragedy. Chapter 2. Tamar is lovely. And Amnon, the firstborn son of David, who is the heir apparent, if you want to say it this way, to his throne, falls in love with Tamar, his sister, okay, his stepsister, and, which is not appropriate and not necessarily right, and he knows it, but he takes things into his own hands and violates his sister. I'm not going to go into any more of the story than that. However, it's a tragedy of great proportions. But here's another great tragedy. David, though he knows this is wrong, the father, does nothing to bring judgment on Amnon. I mean, it's his son. Talk about awkward. How do you deal with this? He wouldn't allow anyone else to do this, but it's his son. David seems to have a weakness in his parenting. 
And that is he allows his children to get away with all sorts of things that they shouldn't. And of course, that comes back to haunt him in this story. Chapter 3, the Stoic Rus. Something you don't yet maybe see in the story is Absalom's response to this. Absalom has a sense of justice, no doubt. And when he sees what is done to his sister, fury and rage, and he wants to crush Amnon. But he's waiting for King David to do what he's supposed to do. But what does David do? Nothing. So, in his heart, Absalom plots and begins to scheme, taking justice into his own hands. And so what he does on the outside is he, he looks pleasant and fine. And so King David's like, well, I think he's really worked through this. Well, that's great. So glad to see Ab- Absalom handling this so well. And so we'll call it the Stoic Rus. Stoic meaning not any emotion. Rus meaning a play act. It's, it's all a play act. Chapter 4, uh-oh, the murder. So Absalom invites all of David's uh, sons to a party. And David actually declines, but uh, Absalom begs, please, especially Amnon. So when he says that, David thinks, you know what, that's really neat that Absalom is going out of his way to show special attention to Amnon. And so he says, all right, all right. And so Amnon shows up, and and Absalom had already created the entire setup, and all of his men killed uh, Amnon in cold blood. Murder. This is literally murder. Does, does Amnon deserve it? Probably. However, it's not Absalom's place to bring judgment. However, since David didn't, he took it into his own hands. Chapter 5. Because of this, Absalom recognizes the uh, attitude of David towards him, that he's not happy about this, and he flees. And he goes to Geshem, and he basically hides there. We'll call it the exile. And, you know, it, it's about three years passes. And we have the return of the unrepentant, chapter 6. David is moved upon to actually get in touch with his son, Absalom, and say, look, please return. Please return to me. I don't like the fact that you're living so far away. Look, we'll work through this together. And so, who returns but Absalom? And he appears repentant. He appears, he appears fine. Maybe I should say it that way, but not repentant. Repentance would mean that he made it right, but he didn't. And one of the key truths you can always learn about church leadership is if someone is removed for a dastardly deed, do not just invite them back unless there's clear repentance, because oftentimes there's a deeper motive. Chapter 7, the burning of the neighbor's field. So Absalom comes back, and he's like, how come my father's not communicating with me? This guy has a chip on his shoulder. That's the only way to describe it. He's young and impetulant. He is... Very difficult to deal with. You could only imagine if you were in David's shoes being like, whoa, how do I handle this kid? So he's like, how come my father's not communicating with me? He keeps talking to Joab. And so he's te- I picture him texting Joab. I know they didn't have text back then, calling him up. And so Joab's phone's like, oh, great, not this guy again. Over and over again, I want to talk to my dad. How come my dad won't talk to me? Hey, if you're his right-hand man, you can get him into me. Hey, how come you're not doing this? So Joab keeps ignoring him. Was it right that did Joab ignored Absalom? No. Probably wasn't, but look what Absalom does as a result. There was a neighboring field that belonged to Joab, and so Absalom burned it down. It's like, you don't respond to my calls? I'm going to burn your field. What you're going to begin to see is an incongruent response to something that was a wrong behavior towards Absalom, but then you have an exaggerated fury 
that comes out. And yet the whole while you can say, yeah, it really isn't good that David didn't punish Amnon. Yeah, it really wasn't good that Joab didn't make the phone call, that he didn't actually get back with him. And you can say, yeah, that's a good point. However, it's exaggerated. And it's completely unrighteous. It's not the way God would respond in the situation. Oh, the false vows. So finally, Joab does make an appointment with Absalom to come before David. And Absalom bows low and shows a false reverence and a false humility for his father. Could remind you of Judas. Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek. It's a sign of affection. He was betraying him at the very moment. Absalom has betrayal in his heart even at this moment. He has conspired to destroy his father. He has. And so what's he doing? He's given a false bow. I want you to be very watchful. As we build a church, I want you to begin to recognize this spirit. I do not want it in you or in this church. I do not want that falseness and that baseness that is literally conspiring to undermine and hurt those that maybe have harmed you. This is not how Jesus responds to things. Chapter 9, the gate. Back in the olden days, the gate was the place of decision-making. And so you'd have a lot of the elders that would be at the gate, and a lot of the key discussions over government and policy would take place at the gate. And so Absalom would rise early, and he would come to the gate. And he found that he was very attracted to people that were on their way to share their grievances or their needs with the king. And so Absalom would stop them, and he would talk with them. And he would say, well, where, where are you headed? I'm headed to the king. For what? I'm his son. Uh, well, uh, I, I just have a need, or I have a grievance. And he'd say, well, why don't you share it with me? I mean, I, I'm the king's son. Why don't you share and unburden your heart with me? The king's really hard to get in touch with. I mean, I, I've tried to. He's very, uh, his, his schedule's really full. And so why don't you share your concerns with me? And so no matter what these people shared, you know how Absalom would respond? Oh, really? Oh, he was always on their side. Everything they said, if, he, if they cracked a joke, he laughed. He was a flatterer, constantly telling them what they wanted to hear. And basically, long and short, it was like, you know what? If you're tired with David, just vote me in. You see, I, I'll be on your side. I have heard your case. I know what you want. He doesn't. He doesn't care. It was an undermining of the credibility of the rightful rulership or leadership in Israel. And it says that Absalom stole the hearts of Israel that way. Chapter 10, the devilish wooing, which is just what we went through. Chapter 11, the spiritual vow. He had said that he came unto David and he said, I need to go visit Hebron. And David's like, why do you need to go to Hebron? Hebron is where David was crowned king. Why do you need to go to Hebron? Well, I told God that if you ever invited me back, that I would one day go to Hebron and, you know, fulfill my vow uh, of thanks uh, to God for this. So, of course, he spiritualizes it, and, and David goes, oh, that sounds like a good reason to go to Hebron. Why was Absalom going to Hebron? To be crowned king. He was usurping and claiming the throne of his father. And that's what he did. Chapter 12, we'll call it the sting. The sting is when all the conspiracy comes above surface and you can actually see all that the enemy was conspiring. And boom, it's the moment in which the trumpet blasts and everyone in Israel yells, Absalom is king! And now suddenly David is running for his life. The grievance, the justification of Mr. Falsepeace. 
Everything in Absalom's life is built on this premise, bad pad thai. You see, everything in your life that is going to allow in this spirit is going to come in through rightful means. I mean, the enemy's not dumb. He wants to give you a reason why you would open the door. And bad pad thai, I mean, that's a good reason. You see, all of our reasons, if we were to lay them out and share them with each other, are ridiculous. They really are. Are they just? I mean, if I were to say, do you think I should expect that this Asian restaurant give me something that would please my palate? All of you would probably say, yes, it's important. I mean, we're American restaurants here, and we have to hold our restaurants to a high standard. You would all agree. However, as a Christian, I relinquish rights. I do not just have a right to good pad thai. I can always play that right as an American, but as a Christian, I also must realize that I am under a higher law of love. And that actually rules my existence. I am ruled by the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, not by the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is going to say, hey, fight for your rights. But the spirit of God would say, take the lowest place. Be humble. Two very competing and opposite agendas. Bad pad thai is what got Absalom in trouble. The justification of Mr. False Peace. Grievance number one, the violation of Tamar. Hey, Amnon, how dare you touch my sister? Grievance number two, the non-action of David. You know, these are all reasonable grievances. And I would have a hunch that every single one of your grievances is reasonable. However, you need to handle it the way Jesus has asked you to handle it. Number three, the non-communication of Joab. You know, it's just inappropriate when you're trying to get in touch with someone for them to just totally ignore you, right? I mean, this is just not the respectful way. Joab just didn't handle this right. Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. David just didn't understand David's never really cared about me. This is exactly what Absalom is nurturing. I ex- I'm exiled for three years. It takes him three years to call on his son. He didn't even respond to the Amnon incident. I had to. He has built up a resentment and a bitterness that is literally eating him up. The Absalom response, devilish behavior packaged inside the, a man of supposed justice. Everything this man does, in his mind, he's doing the right thing. When he's killing Amnon, he's saying, I did it because my father wouldn't. When he's burning Joab's fields, what's he doing? He's thinking, I'm doing that which is just to get Joab's attention because look how he's treating me. If I don't do something, Joab will treat other people this way. Yeah, and the reason that I'm taking over my father's kingdom is my father doesn't deserve it. He has misled our country. He is not sensitive to its people. And if anyone knows that, it's the guy who stands at the gate named Absalom. He knows. He knows the heart of the people better than David does. Give the kingdom to Absalom. You see, when you're a young Christian, very often you can see things that could be changed in the church or in leadership. However, you've never spent time in leadership. You don't understand how challenging it is to run something. And so as a result, your ideas may be good on paper, but they don't actually work in actuality. You see, leadership is hard. I remember Elizabeth Elliot saying this way, loneliness is the required course for leadership. You see, everyone around you treats you like you're the, the disease when you're the leader. And yet leadership is a weight. It's a spiritual weight. And so however you are, what you're being prepared for is to be a leader. I would say that for each one of you. However, to be a great leader, you need to learn how to respect leadership. And if you don't respect leadership, you're going to stink as a leader. I'll tell you that up front. 
Because basically what you're sowing, you're going to reap. And so what we want to do is begin to set new patterns with how we handle the pad tie in our life. So let's look at the grievance number one, the violation of Tamar, and grievance number two, the non-action of David. What we have is not God behavior as a response, but we have the, the bait from the enemy, the spirit of the world that speaks in, to Absalom and causes him to behave in a way that is completely opposite the nature of God. Call it vigilante justice or justice taken into your own hands. Killing Amnon in cold blood. By the way, murder is not the way God handles things. Grievance number three, the non-communication of Joab. And then we have the devilish behavior, burning down his barley field. Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. And then we have the devilish behavior, wooing the hearts of Israel through deception and flattery and turning them against David, stealing his father's throne and defiling his father's house. The fruit check. Beware of false prophets, says Jesus, which come to you in sheep's clothing. That's a strange type of clothing to come in, don't you think? Sheep's clothing? What does that mean? You see, we are called sheep. Jesus is our shepherd. And so if you're wearing sheep's clothing, that's basically a way of saying, so say you're a wolf. You're of the opposite spirit. You're of the spirit of the world, and you want to enter in to harm the sheep. What do you need to look like to do it? You need to look like one of the sheep. Otherwise, the shepherd's going to hit you over the head. And so as a result, what a wolf will do is they'll actually dress in sheep's clothing so that they can enter in and not be recognized. However, What's interesting, what Jesus is saying here, and I'll just read it, it says, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. When you're talking about wolves and sheep's clothing, fruit doesn't seem like the right word. It seems like a mixed metaphor here. But by the actions and what comes out of their life, you'll begin to recognize. If you saw a wolf walking around in a sheep outfit, what would you begin to notice? He doesn't walk like a sheep. He doesn't talk like a sheep. He's drooling a little. Uh, Every time he gets near another sheep, it's like he seems to go, something's not right over here. You see, you will know them by their fruit. Their behavior actually betrays them. The zeitgeist, if you are a host in the zeitgeist, it betrays you. And eventually, it shows itself in how you walk, how you talk, how you're living. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them, says Jesus. This is the next verse. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So we have two different spirits. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God, the word of God, and we have the spirit of this age. The spirit of the prince of the power of of the air. Which one you heed defines what fruit you bear. If you you follow the spirit of truth, you bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But if you follow the spirit of this age, you bear what's called the fruit of the flesh. And it gives you away. It gives away the fact that that which motivates you and that which drives you is not the spirit of God. So how do you know? But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. You live out this. So when you receive the bad pad tie, how do you respond? You'd respond like God would tell you to respond. How many times should I forgive him, says Peter? And Jesus says, oh, oh no, Peter also says seven times? He's like, seems very impressive with that. Because seven is a number of completion. I mean, that's a lot of times to forgive someone. And Jesus says, 70 times seven. So even if Peter had forgiven 490 times, and he comes to Jesus 490 times, I've forgiven him, 
can I now, you know, knock them in the teeth? Jesus would say 490 times 490 billion. You see, our God always says, forgive, give love, kindness, mercy. You see, there is a way in which we as Christians respond. Always. There's a way in which this world responds, and most of us are very familiar with that. We need to become familiar with God's response. Improper evaluation of a man. Our strange propensity to applaud the wrong sort of man. What would cause us to cheer on Saul as our king? What would cause Eliab to be the one chosen? What would cause Absalom to be our choice? Could you imagine siding against David and actually saying, Absalom is king? Well, I can't believe anyone in Israel did that. Don't they realize how good they have it with David? You see, that young impetulance will sway the masses. So that's why we as a body need to begin to recognize how these things work, how the spirit of the age will creep in. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul, first king of Israel. A choice young man and a goodly. That means very impressive, by the way. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. He was the giant. When Goliath came to fight against Israel, guess who was Israel's giant? Israel's Goliath was Saul. He was built for the task to lead this nation, wasn't he? No, he just looked good on the outside. Just because someone is beautiful from head to toe doesn't mean that they should be the one leading. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab is the firstborn of Jesse, so it's David's older brother. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then here we have Absalom. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. Yeah, don't we want to follow a guy like that? Be very watchful of how we treat leadership in the church. Just because someone has a silver tongue, that doesn't mean they are fit to lead the church. It is the life lived. And just because they have good opinions or they're sharp in how they think and they know a lot of Bible scripture, we need to be very watchful how we establish leadership in the church. Pastoral bling. You know, a lot of churches, when they have an empty pulpit, will have a pastoral search committee. And so they'll go out and they'll, they'll stick advertisements in different uh, Christian magazines, different pastoral search sites, and they'll get a lot of applications. And... Uh, you know, if you're going to fill out a pastoral application, what are you going to do? You're going to fill it out to sound impressive. I mean, isn't that what you would do? I mean, could you imagine filling it out to be unimpressive? That seems like a very bad idea. And so I'm going to call it pastoral bling. It's just not the way we should be choosing people to lead the church of Jesus Christ because they look good on paper. Have you spent time with this person? Have you witnessed their life? Have you watched them over a period of time? So pastoral bling in and amongst the modern church system. School smarts. If you have a high GPA, well, we might want you here. Uh, stunning creativity. Well, look at the creative illustrations they can use in their sermons. I mean, we want that. We want to be entertained. Knowledge of the Bible. Quick access to relatable scripture references. That's very helpful. You see, I'm not going to say that these are bad things. Like if you're smart and you have a high GPA that we don't want you. I'm saying these can easily mislead us. There's no blemish in him from head to toe. The guy's gorgeous. Yeah, but he has some issues. Business and leadership acumen. Silver-tongued eloquence. Nothing wrong. 
with that list, but it shouldn't be how we choose our leaders. God's evaluation of a man. And the reason I'm giving you this is not because we're choosing leaders right now at Ellerslie. I want you to begin to recognize how God is preparing you as a leader. You see, God isn't after that list as his priority. It's not that he's going to try and make you dumb or he's going to make you stumble over your words and you say, yeah, it's perfect. All right, I don't want someone who's eloquent. It's not that he's against these things. He's for other things. And that's what I want to show you. God's evaluation of a man, humility, does not think highly of himself or his own ability. He thinks highly of God and God's ability. That's what makes a great leader. One who thinks highly of God and of God's ability, not of his own ability. Faith, he thinks highly of God and of God's ability. In other words, God can do it. It's God we're talking about. Of course he can do it. Yet God said it. He's right. He promised he cannot lie. In other words, humility and faith. Well, how about obedience? Whatever God asks, he does without question, without complaint. What if he gets up and says a message that no one wants to hear? Praise God for such a man. In other words, what's it going to lead to, though? For anyone in the audience that is looking for the bling, they can begin to undermine the very credibility of a man of God. Because that man doesn't have the silver tongue. I mean, this church down the road that my friend goes to, he's always saying, oh, yeah, my pastor is listened to by 400,000 people a week. Well, this pastor down here is a following of 300. How does God evaluate a man? David was the eighth son of Jesse. He didn't look the part, but he was a man after God's own heart. Three different times in his life, he was passed over for the bling. And yet God, the entire while, here we are, history testifies all these, what, 3,000 years later after David. How many of us say, I want to be like David? Yeah, we want to be like the lesser, like the one that was passed over because we know he had the stuff of heaven. Love. And when he does it, when he does his obeying, he does it with love just as God would do it. The Absalom twist. In order to make a wrong right, another wrong is justified. You see, this is how Absalom functions. He thinks that two wrongs make a right. It's just not how things work, though. And so Amnon gets away with just the worst behaviors, and David does nothing. So we got some wrongs here. So to make that wrong right, he does another wrong. He kills Amnon. And in his mind, that's justice. But that's not how God works. The heavenly principle, godly solutions are not brought about by ungodly actions. One of my challenges that I've faced is this exact principle. Like, say I'm behind in schedule. I, I don't want to ever be late. I want to be on time to show respect to the people I'm, I'm going to be there, uh, that I'm meeting. Well, so doesn't speeding make sense then? To speed to get to my appointment early. I mean, this has been an Eric Ludy quagmire for years. And so I always have this thought go through my head that I don't need to violate God's kingdom pattern to establish it in a different way. In other words, if I am running behind, well, the simple principle, especially with cell phones now, you call ahead and say, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to be five minutes late. In other words, you look to show respect, yes, but you show respect to everyone around you. You make a God decision that showcases the kingdom of heaven from every angle in your life, not just one. And so if you have to step on truth to establish it over here, something's wrong with what you're doing. God can lead you in every situation. The Spirit of God knows how to address your situation to show Jesus if you get bad tie, bad pad tie. 
it probably would be helpful for that restaurant to know. You notice that I never mentioned the restaurant? It'll let you see if you can find it. But my agenda is not to harm a restaurant. I have nothing against the restaurant. Does that make sense? And so, if anything, you know, I want to show respect there. I want to minister the gospel to those people. Could they use some help on their pad thai? Maybe. Some of you might go there and go, that's the best pad thai I've ever had. So maybe not. However, my agenda is to show love and respect because I'm a Christian. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. That's a very dark time when those that kill you actually think they're doing that which pleases God. You know, we're not that far from that here in America where the church of Jesus Christ, I'm going to put quotes around it, actually looks at those that would stand against what the Bible says as being the great threat to Christianity. Oh, you're one of those Christians? You're one of those Christians that gives us a bad name. And so what they want to do is squash those that are standing firm on the word of God why? To establish God? I mean, what an odd time in which we live. Well, Jesus said there is a time coming, and that will happen. A short list of Absalomian justifications. So Absalom is a justifier. He's able to keep sin in his life and not somehow feel guilty over it. And as a result, it doesn't just ruin his life, but it ruins Israel. And the same is true with you. If you allow these things in, it doesn't just ruin your life, your marriage, and your family, but it ruins the church. And that's how the devil will wield it. And that's why we need to be watchful of these things. So let's go through these. Gossip, slander. Why in the world would we ever allow that into our lives? Don't you know how opposite the kingdom of heaven that is? However, we have our reasons why we do. Have you ever been in one of those uh, prayer groups where we're, everyone's going around and, and giving prayers, and it's just like, I don't know how to say this, but I really feel it's important. So-and-so, uh, I just know this about them. They, they may not know that I know this, but I really feel we need to pray for them. I, I love them. I love them, but I really feel we need to pray for them. What have they just done? They've spread throughout that entire prayer group something that was not meant to be spread. You cover that, and you pray for it privately if you know about it, but you don't slander someone. You don't even know if it's true. You take these things and populate the minds and the hearts of the body of Christ, which diminishes a perspective towards that person in the church. No! Not in the body of Christ. We do not do that. But why do we do it? We feel justified because we see something. Well, I'm a discerning person. I've seen something. Well, there's a time and a place for seeing something, but there's a way and a proper protocol in a church for handling it. Fleshly anger and rage. Why would you ever give way to fleshly anger and rage? That, that doesn't seem like something that would belong in the church of Jesus Christ. You've read James, haven't you? That if, some, if someone has wrath and rage, their religion is false. It's like, yeah, well, so why in the world would we have this? Well, we usually have our reasons. Because you uncovered unrighteousness. Found something that was just not right. And so you went off the handle? You see, that might be wrong. However, your response is equally wrong. And so as a result, you may see unrighteousness, but you handle it in a righteous way. It doesn't mean there's not something known as godly anger, but not that fleshly anger and rage. Backing out of a commitment in a dishonorable way. I've seen this happen so many times over the years. Christians who commit and give their word to something, and then the organization or whatever begins to build around, and suddenly that person feels called of God and led elsewhere. And so it just leaves everyone hanging. 
Well, they have their reason because you feel led to do something different. But the Spirit of God, which is in you, doesn't do that. Let's just put it that way. In other words, he's not schizophrenic. And so when we have commitments, we have commitments. Our word matters. It's our character as the church of Jesus Christ. Spreading discord. I mean, why, why, why would we do that? Well, it's deserving in this situation. Have you seen what that person has done? Don't you understand how dangerous this is? And so as a result, we spread it. Self-pity. Because you were wronged, and it's only right to nurse your wounds. Self-pity sounds like a little cuddly, fluffy thing. It'll kill you faster than any other, anything else. This is the victim mentality. You start nurturing that, it'll destroy your life. Revenge, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment. Well, because justice must be served. When, mo- when those of us that are unforgiving and we're resentful and bitter, what are we doing? We're bringing justice in our soul. Something was done that was wrong, and so how are we responding to it? With justice. That's what we look at unforgiveness as. I don't trust that God will forgive them, so I'm going to be better. I'm going to bring judgment. It's vigilante justice. It's pulling an Absalom, and it's completely opposite the kingdom of heaven. Banding with others of the same spirit with grievances. There are people out there that have similar grievances to you. Have you ever noticed that you really sometimes just want to talk with someone that has the same grievance? I I told the students, I think it was this week, I was talking about... uh, my Target, well, Leslie's, I want to blame her for have, buying it, but it was a Target dresser, and it's one of those build-it-yourself dressers. You ever seen those things? And uh, so I really don't like those build-it-yourself things because they, they fall apart very quickly, even if they're, they're good ones. And so I built this thing, and it, it was worse than my pad tie incident, okay? The drawers did not fit all the way across onto the rollers, so it just collapsed in there. Excuse me? What kind of piece of junk is this? You know, my first desire was to go to Target.com, look up the product, and see comments. Because I wanted to nurture my grievance by sharing with other people that were like, yeah! And they, there were. It was a one rating. And they're like, this thing is terrible. If you ever go into a Target, go find it on the store shelves, dump it onto the aisle, and then get one of those uh, monitor, those speaker things and say, pile of junk, aisle 11 for cleanup. And I'm like, yeah, amen. (laughs) You see, when you have a grievance, we oftentimes are very vulnerable to wanting to surround ourselves with other people of similar grievance. And as a result, we band together and we form coups. We form subgroups that actually bring damage to God's order and his kingdom. Be very watchful of how these things work because it can make that which is wrong suddenly seem right. You know that it feels more right? When a whole bunch of you around you are all have a similar grievance and are all venting it the same way, it's like, yeah, it must not be wrong because these are all Christians and they're all frustrated about the same thing. However, we still must be governed by the Spirit of God. Responding is Jesus. We forgive, we forgive, and we forgive. We turn the other cheek. We walk the extra mile. We rejoice. We leap with joy. We respond with gentleness. Commission, command, all throughout the New Testament. This is how the Spirit of God will work through you. This is what it will look like. And we're like, yeah, well, except for this situation because I got some bad pad thai. God, you, you never mentioned pad thai in Scripture. Oh, he did. He did. He doesn't need to talk about the exact specifics and use the word pad thai. He's sharing with you any time that there's a grievance, any time when you are falsely accused. You're supposed to leap for joy when you're falsely accused. 
Leap for joy. Should have put that in the list. Oh, I did. Look at that. <laughs> Two key applications. Be watchful of an Absalom in your own soul. You see, Absalom doesn't just function at the gate in a church. It starts here. It's the spirit of the flesh. It is the thing that's always baiting you off center. It's like, come on, you don't need to accept that. Come on, I have a better way for you. God's way is weak. Come on, let's bring real justice to this situation. You handle it God's ways, you thrive. You live an abundant life. You handle it the flesh's ways, not only do you die, but you kill those around you. How about this? Be watchful of an Absalom in the church. Strange as this is, when any of us give way to that Absalom voice, we then become vulnerable to bringing it into the church. You know that every single one of us has brought in that Absalom spirit into this church at some point in time or another. I'm not saying that you're an Absalom. I'm saying it's a spirit that we have entertained even for a moment. And when you do, what do you do? You just make it right. You close off that door. If you open a window on a snowy day and snow starts coming in and building up on your couch, what should you do? Sit there and just weep? You should close the window. That's what we do as Christians. If you recognize that you're opening a window to the church and suddenly cold drafts are coming in, what should you do? Repent, close the window, and all is fine. You see, we're a forgiving bunch. You know, I, I have to make things right when I respond incorrectly to pad thai, and so do you. We're all Christians, which means it's the Spirit of God that is going to convict us and refine us to be able to work together as a body. Recognizing the Absalom technique. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. This is how the flesh works in our life, and this is actually how it works in the church of Jesus Christ. There are people that will try and make themselves the voice in a body. And they have their ways of doing this, to establish credibility. You know, I, I've seen different people in the past that are always hearing from God. And so they always have a word for everyone. And as a result, in a time of crisis, you want to go to that person because they might have a word for you. However, are we sure if we tested the word of that person throughout the time to know that it's actually accurate? And so just because they are always hearing from God doesn't mean they're hearing from God. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, and it was so that when any man that had, had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom do to, to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. Listen to this line. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see, we as the body of Christ need to recognize how this works so that we can stand strong in such an hour. Do you have an Absalom standing at the gate inside your soul? Do you have something that's appealing to you? Saying, oh, you don't need to go to David. David doesn't fully understand. The word of God is blurry on this point. Why don't you come and heed my voice? You see, that other voice is always going to tell you to respond in a way that is completely opposite David's way. However, just go to David. Pass Absalom in the streets, even if he's standing there going, hey, 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 you on your way to David? 
Yes, I am. Just keep your eyes fixed to the son of David, to Jesus Christ. He has the solution for you. And when you heed it, it will look different than Absalom's solution. But you will find life and life abundant. Are you a walking contradiction? Are you a big talker and a small liver? These are all evidences that you have an Absalom at the gate. You talk big but live small. Such a discrepancy should not last one more minute in your life. If you are a mere talker, you must question what your true motive is. Are you truly interested in justice and mercy, as you say, and doing that which is right and the health of Israel is, is all that matters, or is it all a big charade? Number two, do you tell people what they want to hear or what they need to hear? Are you a flatterer or a truth bearer? Are you honoring your parents? Are you honoring those in authority over you? See, if you're not honoring your parents, it's very unlikely that you're honoring any other authority in your life too. And if you're not honoring your parents, just a quick rule of thumb, you're most likely not honoring the word of God, your father in heaven. You see, this is a pattern that oftentimes we set when we're young. It does not mean that you can't repent and establish a new pattern. But we have a disobedient and rebellious age. And that zeitgeist of our age is rebellion towards authority. That's what we all grew up in. Well, guess what true Christianity comes from? Submission to the authority of the word of God and to Jesus Christ. So we got a problem here. So how you handle the authority in your life has a direct relationship to how you're handling your Christianity. Are you undermining those assigned to lead you or are you seeking to build them stronger? When you see weakness in your authority, do you pray and seek their strengthening through humility, love, and service? Or do you whittle away their credibility through whispers, snide remarks, and ceaseless critiques? Number four, do you think that you are the answer to everyone's problems? If so, you are arch enemy number one to God's agenda. For there is only one answer to everyone's problems, and that is Jesus Christ. If you are laboring to see yourself established as the big guy, then it's high time you step down, bench your knee, and properly acknowledge that this life is not about you. Number five, are you justifying small indiscretions? Do you believe the ends justify the means? Do you believe that a little flesh here and there is all right as long as your position of Christian influence is maintained? The Christian life is a life without compromise. If you are look, overlooking small things, then it's highly likely you are setting yourself up to justify larger indiscretions. This is a sure sign that Absalom is standing at your gate. Number six, do you find that those who surround you have a similar ability to justify their small lives and their indiscretions? Are you a rallying point for others who are hosting an Absalom at their gate? Can we as the church really overcome this? I've had my moments. I mean, Les and I have talked about it many times. As a staff, we've talked about it. It's like we have to freshly rally to the word of God and say, yes, this can be overcome. Because at times, I, we joke about the fact that Don Richardson, when he was going after the Sawi people in Papua New Guinea, said that he had the hardest audience for the gospel maybe in the history of the world. And Leslie will joke back and say, well, are you sure? Do you know about 2015, the generation of Christians in America that think they're fine and that actually have no interest in showing respect and regard for any authority, starting with the word of God on down? You try discipling them. And yes, it may seem impossible. As a result, I say, let's think high thoughts about what God can do. Now we have, now we have received not the spirit of the world. So this is the church. We have not received the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So we are not ruled by this spirit as the church. We are ruled by the spirit of God. So what spirit lives inside of you? It's supposed to be the spirit of God. So listen to this. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The spirit that rules us as a church 
is not subservient to the spirit of this world. It is an overcomer of that spirit. So when we walk in the spirit as a church, guess what? That spirit will not be allowed in. It will not control us. The zeitgeist has been overcome. So the spirit of this world has been defeated. 2 Samuel, listen to, listen to this. And imagine that Absalom is a picture of the spirit of this world. And what you're going to see is a picture of the cross. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, you're going to see a picture of what Jesus Christ did at the cross to the spirit of this world. Watch. It's amazing. And Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head caught hold of the oak. And he was taken up between the heaven and the earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Any man who hangs on a tree is cursed in Israel. Then Joab took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. That which opposes us was crucified on a tree. Isn't that an amazing statement? When Jesus came to that tree, he became sin for us and he bore that which was justly due. And in dying on that tree, he brought judgment on the devil, on the flesh, on the power of sin and darkness, crushing its head. That which has controlled us no longer has authority and power over us. It was hanged on a tree. Do you fear Absalom? I mean, should David wake up the next morning and go, Absalom's going to get me? No, because Absalom is hanged on a tree. You see, that spirit is crucified. It is dealt with. It is dead, flatlined. So as a result, you, just like being in a plane, you enter into a higher law, and you are now dead to the law of gravity. The law of gravity no longer controls you, but you are controlled by a higher law known as the law of aerodynamics. However, outside that plane, the law of gravity is still hanging around. It's still pressing down. However, as long as you remain in that plane, you will function after a higher law. And that's the way we as Christians work. The zeitgeist is out there. But when you live inside of Christ and function by his spirit, it no longer controls you, but you are able to catch flight. Introducing the tree upon which our Absalom was crucified. You tired of listening to that voice? I don't blame you. Reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. You see, that voice was destroyed. That power over our lives as the church is no more, which is why we must seal the doors, we must close the windows to that rush of air from the outside. The spirit of the world is not the spirit of the church. And so as a result, let's be watchful of it in our lives. And if you see even a bit of it today in you, repent and close the window to it. Purge it. Drive it out in the authority of the name of Jesus, the one that you serve. And if we see it in the church, there's a proper way of handling things. If you see something that's disconcerting, go to one of the pastoring elders and share it with them. You see, there's a proper way of handling things instead of discord, slander, and gossip so that we can maintain respect and a noble environment and truly wash each other's feet. I do not want you to be sniffing for wolves around you. I want you to be trusting that the body of Christ is the body of Christ. 
And I want you to be expecting that God is going to train us to create a protected environment where daggers aren't just constantly in all of our backs. I recognize the vulnerability that many of us have in just being in a church building. Church buildings for some of us are like, oh, you you wouldn't believe, Eric, how tough it was for me to even come here. No, I, I do understand. I actually do. We are a very vulnerable generation because of what we've faced. But I say it's high time the tide turns. And we begin to see the power of what the Spirit of God can do in the church of Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.